0: This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Adults, let's open our Bibles to Jude. Jude, for anybody who's staying in this room. So today is the first Sunday of Advent. We're looking forward to the second coming of Christ, and we're thanking God for the sending of the Messiah. Now, let me tell you this. Typically, we have a special sermon series for this sermon, or for this season. And we will. It just doesn't start today, uh, or next week, in fact. It starts in two weeks. So, we did this because of the way that we just wanted to, to finish Jude. Jude's a small book. We wanted to pack Jude into one specific time, and just the way the calendar fell, we needed to finish it out. So, we will have an Advent series. It starts in two weeks. We actually, that's going to work out kind of well this year because we can kind of cheat in Christmas is a Sunday, so plan on being here, Christmas Day, what better day to get together to worship than Sunday morning, Christmas Day, we'll be here and we're going to kind of make that uh, one of our Advent sermon series Sundays. We'll actually be in the Gospel of John, we're going to be looking at... The the coming of Christ from the perspective of John's gospel. And then, Lord willing, what we're going to do is we're just going to keep going into the new year in that gospel. And we're going to spend much of 2023, should the Lord tarry, in John's gospel, which I'm really, really looking forward to. But this morning, we're in Jude for this week and then one more week. So, Jude, close to the back of your Bible, It's, it's so short, it doesn't even have chapters. So, look for Jude, verse 17. And for the last four weeks, this is week number five, I've been telling you how fun it is to dig into a really small book because you can see patterns and you can draw a lot of connections. And the slower and the more intentionally you read a book like Jude, the more you will see those patterns, the more you will see those connections. I was thinking of, do you remember those 3D uh, posters that people used to make and, and look at? They were computer-generated images, and, and when you would look at them, it, at first it would just kind of look like a, a geometric shape. But then the more you looked at it, the, the, the more intensely you focused on it, something with depth would emerge and from what looked like a flat picture something with three dimensions sort of at least the the, visual appearance of three dimensions would emerge but it took you a moment of intentionally looking at it to see it that's Jude Jude's one of those And we're going to be in verse 17 where you will see that more than any place else, or starting in verse 17, you'll see that more than any place else in this book. The longer we look at this book, the longer we look at these verses in particular, because one of them is the center of the book, we will see a perspective change. We will see something with depth and shape and beauty emerge out of this book. So let's, let's read it once over. And then we're going to work through it pretty slowly. So Jude, verse 17, follow along in your Bible that you have in front of you as I read. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions... It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy without fear, with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we'll stop there. And I want us to see so much, because this is the word of the Lord. There's so much for us to see here. So we, we start off with a contrast. And the contrast sends us looking backward, really in two ways, back in the letter and back in time. So it says, but you must remember beloved. And Judah loves the role. So what he does with this whole letter is he analyzes the present by pointing to the past. And so if you look at that beloved, it takes us all the way back to verse 1 to those who are called, beloved in God the Father. He calls his readers beloved again in verse 3 when he says he wanted to write a celebratory letter, but instead he knew he needed to write a call to action. There he says, beloved, and he says a little bit later, I'm appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. They needed to contend. And we're going to see this morning that we need to keep contending because there will always be opposition to the gospel. And then the contrast is, so that's who the beloved are, those who need to contend. And the contrast is, but you must remember. The remember comes from what he's just finished saying about the past. Uh, So the way Jude structures this is to start by saying you must contend for the faith. Then he describes what we're contending against. He does that by showing examples from history of of what opposition to truth faith in God manifests itself as, looks like. And then in verse 4, he says that there will be ungodly people who distort the gospel, and and what you're expecting him to say in verse 4 is, so keep them out of the church. Keep them at a distance. Hold them far away. But that's his first turn in the letter. He says that they will often sneak into the church, and they'll do their damage from the inside. Now, I've been saying this for a month out of Jude. Spotting enemies who come ready for war is easy. Enemies far off in the distance coming for battle, that's easy to see. Decrypting people who seem like friends, who act like friends, that's much harder. So that's what Jude is trying to get us to do. He's trying to say, I'm going to help you to decrypt what will look like a perversion of the gospel. And so if you look at verses 5 through 16, just to kind of give you an overview of the letter... What Jude does is he says that that this basically comes in three ways. And those three just kind of loop over and over again. They loop in the lives of people. They loop throughout history. And they'll just come to you time and time and time again. And so he says people pervert the gospel in these three ways. He says they do it through unbelief, what he calls unbelief. He says they do it through rebellion. They refuse to live under the authority of God. And they do it through immorality. And to illustrate this, what Jude does is he just works from key times in the nation of Israel. And then he gets increasingly personal with his examples. And so he says, you've seen the destruction that it's had over our people And then you've seen how individuals, how it's worked itself down, and individuals have been destroyed by this as well. So he says, this this is what happens. People refuse to believe what God has said. They've heard from God. They've known God. In some cases, they've even had God speak to them. They've read the word of God. They've known what they are to do but they refuse to hear the word of God and heed it. That's unbelief. That's hearing something and just saying I'm going to choose to believe and to do something else. And that kind of leads into rebellion. God has said I am your king. Live under my lordship. And people have simply said no. We will be masters, kings, lords unto ourselves. And then you see Jude point to this a few times. He says what that leads to is the the rampant immorality of people. And really what he he does is he zeroes in on on, on a sexual immorality as the focal point of that. And he says it it works that way because you see it in in both a person's life, but also just at at a social level. That where there is a departure from a God-given sexuality, sin has kind of broken loose. And that's because the most fundamental thing we're created to do is bear the image of God. And and put right into that image is what it says in, in Genesis 1. We're created, male and female, both are the image of God. And it says in Genesis 2 that when man and woman marry, they do so because it's a greater reflection of God's glory. So when men and women marry, they're reflecting the goodness and the glory of God because God's multiple people. And he's put something into two people uniting together that glorifies him by reflecting him in a way that those two people alone can't. And that can only happen when a man and a woman are married to one another. So those are the three. At least the three big ways that Jude says that those who pervert the gospel and deny the lordship of Jesus Christ come. Unbelief, rebellion, and immorality. And there's other kinds of immorality that we could point to. Lots of immorality. But that's what he kind of uses as his big example. And then he says we should expect this. Verse 17, where we pick it up now, goes on to say that this goes along with the predictions of the apostles in our, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's several places we could go for this. But what Jude probably has in mind is something like what the apostle Paul tells the Ephesian Christians the last time he talks to them. He tells the elders this. This is uh, verse uh, Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after my... So, And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You hear that warning? It was probably things like that had been said to them and were known to them, maybe even spoken by Jude and then The other apostles, and so he's referencing something. He said, you remember what I told you. Remember what others have told you. This is going to happen. Paul, I could think of two or three more times where Paul is saying similar things to different churches and different groups of people. And then to close out these warnings, so Jesus said this, the apostles said it, and now Jude adds his own here in the letter. How will you know you're seeing it when it comes? Jude's warning is verse 19. You'll know it when you see it, because these people will cause divisions. They'll be worldly, and they'll be devoid of the Spirit. And Spirit's capitalized in your Bible. Church, we have to be able to tell the difference between the sheep and the wolves. And to do that, we have to understand that there is a clear distinction Now, follow me on this for a minute. There's a clear distinction between evangelism and discipleship. And being able to make this distinction is a matter of need. So I'm going to explain this, but let me just say that one more time. We need to make a clear distinction. This is what Jude is saying. Between evangelism and discipleship, and that distinction is not a matter of want. It's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of need. So look at what he says at the end of verse 19. These people are, let's just focus on this one, devoid of the Spirit. Spirit is capitalized because it's referring to God, the Spirit, who saves, or who awakens, seals, and preserves believers for glorification with God forever and ever and ever. Every Christian is inhabited Indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so this isn't to say that these people are devoid of the Spirit. This isn't a little, you know, jab that catches somebody off guard and knocks them a little bit. This is a right uppercut into the jaw, into the chin that knocks a boxer out. Devoid of the Spirit. He's saying they're not believers. They have no spiritual life. If you're not getting what I'm saying, they're dead spiritually, condemned. Devoid of the Spirit, they're not Christians. And so what these people need, well, people that we know who are devoid of the Spirit, what they need is evangelism. And the most helpful thing that they can be told is that they are living opposed to God and they are under the power of sin. But if they turn to Christ and ask him to take their sins upon himself, they will be saved. That's what people need. Over and over again, Jude calls people ungodly. The good news is that Romans 5, 6 says that we, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. There are probably even people here right now who are in this very position. And what you need most from me, what your friends who don't know me need most from you, is not for you to pretend that they are some other way. But they need you to say, you're a worldly person, devoid of the Spirit, ungodly. Say it a little bit nicer than that, okay? Say say it a little bit nicer than that. But they need to hear you say Christ died for the ungodly. Which means he can have died for you if you will accept him. That's what people need. They don't need behavior modification. They don't need a little character tweak. They need to know that they're under the power of sin but Christ can free them from it. That's why we need to see a distinction between evangelism and discipleship. Evangelism is sharing the gospel with people who don't know Christ. Discipleship is applying the gospel with people who already know him. And do you see how I worded that? I worded that in a very specific way. Let me just say that again. Evangelism is sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel with people who don't know Christ. Discipleship is applying the gospel with people who already know him. Now, we need to to understand this. One's not better than the other. They both rely on the power of the gospel. They're both great works of God's grace. And at one point in time, everyone, including everybody here, needs both. At some point in your life, and this applies to every single one of us, at some point in your life, you were not a Christian. You can't have always been a Christian. Your Christian testimony cannot start with, I, oh, I guess I've always been a Christian. Wrong. You can't have always been a Christian. That's not how it works. At some point in your life, you might remember it very clearly and vividly, based on age, based on the circumstances, or you might not remember it so well. But every single person needed to have the gospel shared with him or her. And you needed to respond to it for the very first time. That's conversion. You needed to be converted. And then for the rest of your life, if you are a Christian, what you're doing is not something beyond the gospel, you're taking that grace of God, that good news, and you're receiving it, and you are applying it in discipleship. You have an ongoing work of growth in Christ that's powered, fueled by the gospel. And I'm terrified that in our era, and we'll just kind of call it kind of our brand of Christianity, we have a massive deficiency of understanding when it comes to what conversion is and whether or not we've experienced it. Conversion, folks, is literally the difference between moving from death to life. And so we can't afford to be wishy-washy here. We can't think wrongly about this. We can't think that conversion, evangelism, discipleship, the distinction, that's probably something that theologians think about, but us regular Joes, We're in the real world. We don't think about these things. Regular folks like us, that's not for us. This is what Jude is screaming. You have to know who's truly converted and who isn't. Because the difference is life and death, and the difference will rip your church apart. Ungodly, worldly, devoid of the Spirit. They don't need a little tweak. They're under the power of sin And they need to have that bondage broken. They need to have the chains that they've been kept in loosed. And they need to be freed. And then he says, you turn to discipleship. Discipleship means to learn or follow. After we're transformed from death into life, we spend the rest of our lives learning Christ. So now look at verse 20. One more contrast, one more beloved. Moving from the past and other people. That's happened long ago in the past, happened long ago in, the, in our history. There's other people who did this. Now we're moving to us, we're moving into the present. This is for us right now. What was warnings using somebody else is now going to be intensely personal for you, for us. In fact, this is what every person in here needs to do. It's not let's be let's be very, very direct right now. This is not for us to look around and wonder. I wonder who else in here needs this. But right now, to say, every single person, forget about the rest of the people in the room, say, I need to hear this. This is for you. That's exactly what Jude is saying. When he gives these present tense commands, this is for you. So in our translation, there, there are two commands that come before this. But actually, grammatically, the rest of these verses are kind of controlled by one command. There's one overarching thing we need to do. In English, it sounds a little bit like it's, it's in the present tense. But actually, it's in the, it's in the Greek aorist tense, which means it, it's something we, we do now, but we also continue doing. It's in verse 21. Look at how verse 21 starts. This is where all the connections come alive. This is where the puzzle goes 3D right now. Verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the hinge for all the imperatives that come before this and after this. And all this is a big list of imperatives. And keep yourselves in the love of God is what they all hinge on. What they all turn on. They all rotate around. And remember, what Jude said he was was doing in this letter is rallying Christians to contend for their faith. And so the simple answer to how do we contend for our faith is to keep ourselves in the love of God. It's more complicated. It works itself out. But that's where it starts. If you say, how do I remain a Christian? How do I stay in God's love? How, How do I do the Christian life? Jude's answer is really simply this. Keep yourself in the love of God. And so because everything revolves around that, let's just, I'm gonna spend the bulk of our time, the rest, the remainder of our time, just asking what it means to do that, to keep ourselves in the love of God. So first that word keep, and this whole idea of being kept, remember the, the 3D, this is where it goes, that runs throughout this letter. It runs throughout this letter like a river runs through a valley. Rivers that run through valley deliver nourishment through the water to the rest of the valley. Also, over time, they, it forms the valley. It cuts the valley where it is. This, run, this idea of keeping and being kept runs through Jude like it, it cuts, it shapes the whole book. It started as the first place that Jude uses it in verse 1, the whole book. To those who are called, loved, beloved, and kept, in Christ, in Jesus Christ. So there, those God is, there are those that God is keeping with himself. Then if you look at verse 6, you have another kept, another keeping, but this one's different. There are people who defy God are kept in eternal chains. Now, verse 21, we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. And finally, in verse 24... God is able to keep us from stumbling and present us blameless before himself. So you see what I mean? It's just running through the whole book. This is the line that's drawn through the letter. And this is what it's saying. It's kind of in sequence. God can keep you close. God can keep those who oppose him away. We keep ourselves in his love He will make sure we're kept in his love. See that line running? And we can talk a little bit about how to actively do this. But first let me address some tension I think this brings up as we we read the Bible together. So some of us are going to read, keep yourselves in the love of God, and immediately our ears are going to perk up, and if we have some kind of theological radar, it's going to start beeping. Beeping. Because we're going to say, well, isn't God the sovereign one? God's the powerful one. Salvation belongs to him. He elects and he seals for glorification. How can we be told to keep ourselves in the love of God? Isn't God the one who keeps us in him? Another way of just asking is, aren't we saved and held by sovereign grace? Isn't it his work entirely? Isn't that what we're told? It's not any work of ourselves. Isn't it his work entirely? So what Bible students, what do we do with this? Here's why it's great to preach the books of the Bible. I can just handle this tension really simply this way. Because we we come up on these things. This is how you can simply handle a tension like this. You can say this is what the Bible says. I don't know that I can fully unpack every little aspect. I actually don't think there's that much contrast or tension here. But that's where it starts. This is what the Bible says. And I believe, and I believe you should believe, that whatever the Bible says is true. And so I don't actually think there's there's too much tension here when you really get down to it. It can, at the same time, be entirely correct to say that God does all the work to save us by grace and to say that our salvation then comes with some commands, and I would use, even, even use the word demands. Our salvation comes with some demands from God. And he's gone, so he's got the right to make them. And so I'll say it like this. So in this letter, we already read verse 1, it says that God keeps us in him. Verse 24 says that he will keep us from stumbling and to make sure we're blameless before him. Verse 21 is saying that the way he does all of that, in part at least, is by instructing us and teaching us what our role is. He's gonna do it, but he's gonna teach us how to join him in that work. I don't think God's sovereignty and our responsibility are in disagreement at all here. I think this is like a couple saying that we believe that God has brought us together in marriage. And while we absolutely intend to stay married as long as we're both alive, we know that we'll take work. And so we're daily going to fight for joy together in our marriage. We're daily going to fight for unity in our home. Because we believe that God has brought us together, and because we believe that he will persevere us in this, But this is one of the ways that he's actively taught us how to do this, to fight for joy and to fight for togetherness. Actually, what this little letter is giving us is an incredible promise. It's saying that because God has called us, because he said we won't stumble, as we press into Jesus, as as he will keep us close to his love, what this is saying is as we do that, we're going to succeed in it. This is on the same level as as James's promise that if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Christian, you don't have to wonder, will I keep myself in the love of God? You can rest sure that if your desire is to stay in the love of God, God will keep you there. His promise is you will be held secure. So you can boldly believe in him. You can put your full faith in him because you know that it won't be in vain. That's an incredible promise. You don't have to wake up this morning wondering, will I stay in the love of God today? You can wake up in the morning and say, God, I want to stay in your love today. Sure that God will stay. And by my righteous power, you will stay in it's amazing. I don't know how anybody sleeps at all without a promise like that. But we can sleep like babies. Babies don't sleep. That's a weird expression. We can sleep like people who have had turkey with promise like that. That's sovereign grace. All right, now, how do we keep ourselves in God's love? Let me use another illustration from marriage. Uh, Think back to some of the weddings you've been to, maybe your own, maybe somebody else's, but it's popular now. I I see it more and more for couples to write their own vows. And I do a lot of weddings. I'm not against that. I I don't think it's wrong. But here is what I always tell couples when they say, well, we want to write our own vows. I, I just say, please look at a few sets of traditional vows when you do that because they work. There's a reason people have been using similar vows for generations. It's because they promise the right kind of things. So have you ever gone to a wedding and heard when they get to the vows some version of this? Do you, bride, promise to love your husband And keep yourselves only for him, forsaking all others. A lot of heads nodding. You've heard that promise. In that context, what does it mean for the bride to promise to keep herself only for her groom? The answer is it means that she's going to unite herself to him and she's promising to be united only to him. And I know this is hard for guys in here, but it's one of the most common metaphors in all of the Bible is our relationship with Christ being compared to a bride and a bridegroom. And so this is the invitation to Christ. This is the invitation from Christ, who is the groom to us, his bride. He says, promise to keep yourselves only for me. And what that promise means is you're going to forsake all others. And when we do that, he promises, we'll just go on with this, he promises to have us and hold us. We promise, and in sickness and in health, to death do us part, but his promise is actually stronger than that. Death will not part us from him. He switches that up. It's actually that death will allow us to see him even better face to face. And so when it says, keep yourselves in the love of God, that's what it's saying. Have that picture in your mind. A promise to keep yourself for Christ, and then what usually comes after that, forsaking all others, to say, I am going to be Christ's. I will forsake the world and its ways. I will forsake ungodliness. I will be Christ's. And I will trust that He is going to keep me in Himself all the way, not just to death, but through it. In fact, that's how He secures His promise, is He brings it through death. And then there's one more thing we need to see in this command, just before we talk about a few daily living things. And that's where it is in the context of the letter. Uh, commentator Richard Bockham says that this command is the climax of the letter. It's Jude's answer to how we are to contend for our faith. And what we need to see here is how different that looks than we may have assumed at the beginning of the letter. So if someone told you that you need to contend for the faith, your instinct and your assumption might be to assume that you are going to be taught through this letter, how to contend against heresy or that there are going to be lists of worldly vices for you to stay away from. But when you're told to contend for the faith, and Bacham draws this clear line back from this verse in 21 all the way back to verse 3, but when we're told how to contend, we're not talking about heresy and we're not talking about lists of vices. The answer of how to contend is keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Not, not, not watch out. Other people are gonna come and try to tear you away from God. Not repel the attacks. Put up your shields because arrows are gonna come flying at you. Again, we're told keep yourselves in the love of God. What or who is the greatest threat to your faith? You are. It's not something outside of you. You are. I am to my own faith. The truth is that, is, is that you, you you could go into the world, you could fall into heresy. Sin can run rampant. Everything around you, everything around you can become unmoored. But none of that actually can tear you away from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Romans promises us. What Jude is telling us is that we can keep ourselves from faith. So we must be sure to keep ourselves in faith. We say this you could say it this all the time. Your circumstances do not determine whether or not your faith is genuine. You might have great joy and exceeding abundance and blessing and you might have faith through that. Or you might have a very difficult and tragic set of circumstances and you can still be gloriously faithful. It's not what happens in the world around you. It's not what heresy other people are believing. It's, 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 not the, it's, it's not the entire world drifting away from the dock, having the ropes break and drifting out to sea that will tear you away from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Romans says that can't happen. Nothing can take you out of the love of Christ. But what Jude is saying is you can. So build yourself up in faith. Know the word of God yourself. That's what he says when build yourself up in the most holy faith. Romans Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. If you're going to keep yourself in the faith, you need to know what that faith is. And you do that by hearing and reading the word of God. It says pray in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.14 says that those who are led by the Spirit are sons and daughters of God. Stay in the Spirit. Wait for the mercy of God. Three of the churches in Revelation are praised for their patient endurance. Why is waiting part of keeping ourselves in the love of God? Because good things come to those who wait. Would it really be faith if what we wanted was delivered to us right away? Would that really be faith? God works powerfully in our waiting. Verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Why is part of keeping ourselves in God's love mercy on those who doubt? I think for two reasons. The first, life's hard. Life's really hard. Faith in Christ is not always easy. It's not always easy to believe that in the midst of great struggle, God is making a way, and he's doing it through goodness. So what people need when they express their doubt to us or when their faith seems shaky is not for us to tell them to suck it up, and it's certainly not for us to look upon them in judgment. They need us to tell them that our faith is often weak too. But praise God for Jesus because his belief in the goodness of his father, never wavered. And that belief carried him all the way through the cross, the grave, and into heaven, where he's now sitting at the right hand of God. That's number one. For why is mercy on those who doubt part of keeping ourselves in the love of God? Because our faith will be weak sometimes. Other people's faith is weak sometimes. And we're not going to stay close to God. We're not going to help others stay close to God if all they hear from us is judgment and condemnation and shaking heads when they come and tell us they're having a hard time. That's number one. The second reason we need to have mercy on those who doubt is because Christ had mercy on us. not just Remember, not just when we doubted, but when we were in unbelief. So I meant what I said before. There was a time when you were not a Christian. Some of us might remember it better than others but nobody here was born a Christian. So at some point in your life, it wasn't just that your faith was weak. You didn't have any faith at all. And in that moment, at that time, out of his great mercy, Jesus came. And he opened your eyes. He gave you spiritual life and you then began to believe in him Because of a work of his grace, he did that first. He initiated that saving grace. You weren't just doubting him a little bit. You didn't believe in him at all. It would be so hypocritical for us to condemn someone who is asking questions because we used to be unbelievers. So help people when they ask questions. Empathize. Bless. Pray with them. If they don't want you to pray with them, pray for them. It's the great thing about prayer. Nobody can take that away from you. And like wedding vows, if you want to know how to fulfill this promise daily, during your real life, look at the rest of these verses. The rest of these are Participles, which, which means, again, kind of grammatically, they all hang off that one imperative of keeping ourselves in the love of God. Build yourself up with the most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Do all of these things, which actually don't need a ton of explanation. Do them with that idea of saying, God, I'm keeping myself in you because you've promised that when I want that, you will do it. One more. Let's just do this one more. Hating even the garment, this is the very, how this ends, hating even the garment stained by flesh. In other words, this is looking at somebody who desires to be in the love of God, but is in sin. Why? Why do we do this as part of keeping the lo- in the love of God? The answer is because contending for the faith means that we should not be so naive as to not see ungodliness where it is. But contending for our faith also means not giving up on people and seeing that God redeems the ungodly. Everybody who God has ever saved was at one point ungodly. Everybody who God has ever saved was at one point dead in sin. Everybody who God has ever saved was at one time hopeless apart from a sovereign work of his mercy. And so we can say, we, we, do, we call out sin where it is. We do not stand for the, in support of sin, but neither do we condemn the one who is in sin because God has redeemed us when we were that one. And if we live and move and have our being in God, he can do it in the lives of other people. Everybody was ungodly before they received the righteousness of Christ. And so we keep ourselves in the love of God because it helps us to remember who we once were, who we are now. And, it's a, and we have the hope that God is still doing that in other people. Don't give up on people. Here's what you do when you give up on people. You've made yourself God in their life. You've usurped the place of God in their life because now you're saying, well, I'm going to condemn you. as saying you're unsavable. What if God did that to you? What if God did that to me? But he didn't. He said, that person is opposed to me, but I'm going to turn them to myself. And he can do it to anybody. He can do it to anybody at any time. So we keep ourselves in the love of God because we're kept in the love of God. And we keep hoping, believing by faith that he's going to do it in the lives of others as well. It all hinges on this. I hope you see that. Keep yourselves in the love of God and next week we'll talk about how he's going to fulfill that promise. Let's pray together. God, may you be praised for you have done a work of sovereign grace where we were once dead, ungodly. You died for us at that time if we're in you. And we believe It's our great hope that you will do that in the lives of other people as you continue to hold us in your grace. And so I pray this week, in the coming days, that our church family would keep ourselves in the love of Christ. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.